Good to see everybody. Beautiful day. It's a beautiful weekend. We are in the life of Paul. Um, again, we've been here now for maybe three months, and so there's no way I can review where we are right now. Um, but he, he, he's now, we're looking at the part of his life where he is on what we call his second missionary journey. Um, I believe that Paul believes that Christ is going to come back in his lifetime and is doing everything he can to tell as much of the world as he can about the good news of Jesus. And um, I hope that that's something that we have burning in our heart too. Because on this second missionary journey, uh, let's just think about a few things. Stoned in Lystra, <laughs> he is beaten to a pulp in Philippi. Both of those incidences, he's probably just an inch from losing his life. Um, he has to escape Thessalonica and Berea because they are just so coming after him. And there is a word that defines Paul. This is a word that I, I give to my football team uh, the first practice of, of, of the season. Anybody take a guess? Are you kidding me? Who said that? Grit. Oh, you're my admin. <laughs> I love it. She knows me too well. Grit. What's grit? There you go. Webster def definition for you. Courage and resolve, strength of character. Uh, look at these wonderful synonyms. Uh, courage, bravery, not sure what pluck means. Uh, metal, backbone, uh, keep going down, nerve, fortitude, steel, toughness, uh, determination, tenacity, perseverance, endurance, grit. Does that define you? Are we gritty to the gospel? So, Paul, now, let's uh, turn our Bibles to Acts 17. That's where we are. Beginning at verse 15. And just like there's a lot of standing at basketball games... Uh, when those exciting moments happen. That's why we like to stand for the reading of God's word. <laughs> While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. And a day... Um, and a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he is advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and Anastasius. I think they literally thought that Paul was proclaiming uh, two different gods. And then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus. Where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Because you are bringing some strange ideas to our, our, our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. I like this little parenthesis. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking 
and listening to the latest ideas. That kind of is a summary of Athens and kind of Grand Rapids a little bit too these days. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So, <laughs> you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. The word ignorant there is actually agnostic. Um, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like silver or gold or stone. An image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now... He commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. And he has given proof of this man to everyone by raising this man from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul, and they believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named uh, Damaris, and a number of others. This is God's word. You can be seated. Yeah, so Paul comes to this city, Athens, a city that to this day we're, I think, quite familiar with. Um, arguably, one of the most influential and prestigious cities in the ancient world. I mean, think about everything that was birthed out of Athens. Can you name a few things? Democracy, birthed out of Athens. What else? The Olympics, birthed out of Athens. Uh, really, Western civilization as we know it, really was birthed out of this city. And uh, Athens, 500 years before Paul, uh, ignited this whole golden age in Greece. We call it the classical uh, period or classical Greece, where there was this flowering of, of thought and culture, of the arts and architecture, of sport and human achievement. Um, but by the time we get to Paul, Athens has waned a little bit, but it's still Athens, and it's still one of the cultural and intellectual centers of, of the Roman Empire. So our text tells us that, that Paul shows up here alone, he's, he's waiting for his teammates, um, and, and so while he's there, he's probably like a tourist, and he walks around the city, but he's not just walking, he's, he's investigating. 
namely all the objects of worship that are in this city. I mean, he is seeing temples uh, like the one that you saw before this, and there it is uh, as it would have looked in, in, in Paul's day, the city, the agora at the base, the marketplace, the Acropolis on high. Um, he, those temples were already three, 400 years old when Paul gets there. And one of their, their, their poets, the poets uh, living at the time of Paul, said this about, about Athens. He said, there are more gods in Athens than people. And, and so these gods uh, w- would manifest themselves from everything from a temple to the statues. Some of the statues, as you can see right there, that is a statue of Athena. That, that, that's the granddaddy of them all because Athena is the patron god of the city, Athena, as they say. Um, at her temple there, the Parthenon, which means virgin, she's a virgin goddess, uh, is, is where she lived. And uh, these idols like this to a whole plethora of gods are are, are filling the city. There's nothing more offensive to the Jewish mind than an idol. I mean, this is deeply offensive to a guy like Paul. Um, and, and, and I want to explain wh- why that is. Um, it, it's simply because idols are a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any other graven Im- images. And, and this first commandment is not just first in terms of order. It's first in terms of importance. Because in Genesis 1, when God created the world... It says that he created everything according to its kind. He created the the trees and the vegetation according to their kind. He created uh, the sea creatures and the animals according to their kind. So then the question is, well, according to what kind are Adam and Eve created? It's God's kind. Because in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God says, let's make them in our image according to our likeness. And, and the word image there is, is the word reflection. I mean, if you want to know who you are and why we are here, these two words, image and likeness, spell it out. Image means uh, reflection. We are made to be this perfect reflection of God. And image literally means statue. God made us to be little statues, little replicas of himself. So who are we? We are little idols, God's idols. And why are we here? To reflect that perfect image that God has placed in us of himself to all creation. This is why God says no other gods, no other gods, no graven image. You are my idol. It's your job to reflect who I am into the world. David in Psalm 8 asked this important question. I see him some night just looking up and the stars just like, I don't know if you've had those moments before, but I've had those moments several times where you look at him and you're just like, who am I? In light of how awesome you are, God. And that's exactly his question to God. Who am I? What, what is man that you're even like thoughtful of him? And then his mind goes right to Genesis 1. He says, but you have made man, woman, a little less 
Some of your translations say angels, but the word in Hebrew is Elohim. You have made us a little less than God, and you've crowned us with glory and honor. That's what God made us to be. And this is why uh, in, in verse uh, 16 it says, Paul was deeply disturbed when he sees this city full of idols. Now that word disturbed is, is, is the word provoked. And provoked, again, is a word that is often used of God in the Old Testament when God would see his people worshiping idols. Uh, this is the word that would be said about God, that God was provoked. And this word would also be accompanied with another word about God, his jealousy. So Psalm 78, verse 56 uh, says, For they provoked him with their high places and aroused his jealousy with their graven images. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 21 says, They have made me jealous, this is God speaking, with what is not me. And they have provoked me to anger with their idols. So the reason why God gets provoked, he's jealous. He's a jealous God, God's love for us. I mean, now we're, to, now we're in, 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 in the area of love. Uh, God being provoked is motivated by his love. It's, it's, it's this jealousy. It's, it, it's this possessive kind of love. And, and, and when you hear that, don't think that God is just this possessive, controlling boyfriend. This is a marriage we are talking about. I mean, the Bible is, is many things, but first of all, it's a story. It's, it's a love story. It's, it's a story of a lover who is smitten with love for his bride. And that lover is God himself, the Lord and creator of the universe. And he made us for love. He made us for marriage. And even though we, 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 we made a disaster of the marriage in Christ, he comes across all worlds to find us, to woo us, to rescue us, to bring us back into his arms, to redeem us, to take us as his own. That's who God is. He loves us with a jealous love, which means all idolatry is adultery. We're bringing other lovers into this marriage. And so when the text says that Paul is provoked, he is provoked in the same way that God is provoked. And it's love that is eliciting this this triggering that's going on in Paul, love. You know, when's the last time you've been troubled by what you see? When's the last time you've been provoked? And where, 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 where that, that being provoked is, is motivated by just this deep sense of love? Because I, I, I don't think that we can have the call of God in our life to change the world if we can't look around and see all the troubling things of the 21st century. It's everywhere. Are we provoked? Now my guess is that Paul, because the next verse says Paul went into the synagogue, my guess is that Paul couldn't wait to get into the synagogue. Um, <laughs> 
And, and every Jew, before they went into the synagogue, would go into the waters of Mikvah. Uh, Mikvah was just a, a place before they entered uh, uh, God's uh, space. Um, they, they washed their head, their heart, their hands, their feet. It was a time of repentance. It was a time of cleansing. It was a time of recommitting their head, their heart, their hands, their feet, their total self back to God. And I'm just thinking Paul probably just was loving that moment when he could just wash himself of the darkness of Athens. And, and this is what Paul does. I mean, this is his strategy. Every place he goes, he goes to the synagogue. Because in the synagogue, not only does he have uh, the Jews who are ripe for the gospel, but he also has these God-fears, these Gentiles, too, that are worshiping Yahweh and, 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 and learning God's word and living it out. And, and, and so he goes there. But this is one of the first times where Paul steps out of the synagogue and, and goes to the marketplace, or where at least that is highlighted. Now, the, the marketplace in the ancient world, uh, the, the Greek word is agora or agora. The agora or agora is the place where everyone goes almost every single day because it's the urban center. It, it's the place uh, of buying and selling the shops. The businesses are there, but it's also the place of sport, the stadiums, uh, the gymnasiums are there. It's the place of entertainment. The theaters, the dance halls are there. It's the place of religion. This is where the temples and, 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 and all that worship expression takes place. That's there. Uh, it's the place of ideas. I mean, this is the, where the university is, uh, the colleges, and in Athens. I mean, this is Athens. This is Oxford of the ancient world. And its two top colleges are, are the Stoics and the Epicureans. Um, which are in our text. But, but what I want us to see right now is, is this, this marketplace being the place where, where everyone goes, the scholar, the philosopher, the artist, the craftsman, the businessman, businessman the buyer, the seller, the politicians, the judges, uh, the athletes, the tailgating fans, uh, the, the, the celebrations after big wins, like yesterday. Um, <laughs> that's enough. But I want us to see, this is where Paul goes and sets up shop. And what does Paul do? He's a tent maker. Where do you make tents? Where do you sell tents? You do that in, in, in the marketplace. Um, Paul was raised in Athens. Athens, if, if, if um, Athens is, is ancient Oxford, uh, Tarsus, the town Paul was raised, was university town to Stanford. And Paul, you can see, got some of that training, that, 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 that Greek uh, philosophy and, and, and Greek thought, um, trained by, uh, by probably some of the best. This is natural for Paul. This is not a bull in a china shop just standing up with a microphone and, and belting out the gospel. And what you have then are people are taking notice. They're hearing the things that Paul is saying. They're, they're, they're looking even at this guy life. The word travels. And then in verse 18 and 19, um, they start saying to Paul, Paul, you know, you come with these, these strange ideas, uh, ideas that 
are outside of, of, of thoughts that we've had. Not just ideas are you bringing in, but you're bringing in new gods. So they bring him to the Areopagus. They have to bring him to the Areopagus. Uh, Areopagus, let me break that word down. Um, Ares is uh, Mars. Uh, Mars is the Roman way of saying it. Ares is the Greek way of saying it. Pegasus is hill. So some of your translations don't have Areopagus, but it, you have Mars Hill. Uh, Mars Hill is an actual place in Athens. In fact, it's this big marble rock uh, kind of next to the Acropolis where this council would be held or where people would go and talk about the latest ideas. But what I want us to see is, is more importantly about the Areopagus, it's not just this rock in Athens. It's not a place. It's a council. It's the city council that runs Athens that's made up of probably more than 500 people. Now, one of the things that we know about this council from, from the history books is that this council acted as the gatekeeper for all the religious expression that took place in Athens. So any god that was worshipped in Athens had to be approved by the Areopagus. And to be approved, the herald or the evangelist of this new god had to do two things. First of all, to the Areopagus had to prove the existence had to give proof of this God's existence. And the second thing that they had to do is build a temple for this God, if approved. Of course, it wouldn't be they themselves building a temple, but they would raise the funds and make sure of that because the ancient world couldn't uh, conceive of a, of a God that didn't have a temple. So this, then, is the context of, of Paul's speech to the Areopagus. And you look at verses 22 and 23 where he says, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious. I see your temples, I see your idols, your altars, and, and, and Paul highlights this. He says, I found a place of worship that is dedicated to what you call a God that you don't know about. And this is the chink in the armor that Paul sees that he is going to seize upon. Because what he's going to do now is he is, in a very clever way, he's going to take this God that they claim ignorance and say, I'm not coming in with a new God. I'm coming here to tell you about a God that you already claim that you don't know about. But guess what? I know that God. And it's kind of like he, he, he's all, uh, saying, like, you guys are already worshiping Jesus. You just don't know it. So I'm going to tell you what it is that you don't know. And then when he explains his God, he literally blows up all of their paradigms and conceptions about what God or the gods are to them. Because it, to a Greek um, these are just deities. They're, they're, they're local deities. They're, they're regional deities. Each, each deity had this, this limited control over this limited sphere of life. 
verses 24 and 25, <laughs> I mean, Paul just, he, he blows this up. I mean, he's, he essentially says, okay, this, this God that is unknown to you, um, this isn't just the God of sport or the God of beauty or the God of wisdom or, or, or the God of health or the God of war. The God that I'm going to tell you about is the God of everything because he made everything, which means he is Lord of everything. So why are you guys asking me to build him a temple? I mean, this is the God who <laughs> we don't build things for him. He is the builder. He built it all. And so this God isn't dependent on what our hands can do. We are utterly dependent in every way upon this God, which is why Paul then quotes one of their poets in verse 28. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. In essence, what Paul is saying now, I mean, he's doubling down on this whole thought. Look, we don't build God a temple. God made us to be his temple. He wants to live in us. And then Paul quotes one of their playwrights in verse 29. He says, we are God's offspring. And I want you to just see right now how Paul is just personalizing this God. Because Paul has just blown up their conception of God. Because in, in their mind, God is neither really near or, or far away. He's just, the gods are just kind of out there. And Paul just blew it up by saying, no, the God that you don't know about, that I'm explaining to you, he's over all of it. And he's way out there. Because he's that massive, that great. But he's also this close. In him we live and move and have our being. And, and, and now Paul is going to get to the, to the personal nature of God in quoting uh, this playwright by saying we are God's offspring to just let them know we're not just talking about this force, let the force be with you. Uh, we are talking about a God who is incredibly uh, personal and he uses this family language that, that God isn't just some all-powerful force, but he's, he's father. We're his children. And see, what I want us to see here, how, how Paul is explaining the gospel, or, or maybe better yet, how he isn't doing it. Whose text is Paul using? His or theirs? Theirs. What about culture? Because anytime you move from your culture to another culture to tell someone about what you believe, uh, is Paul imposing his culture on them, or is he becoming a student of their culture? I mean, look at verse 23. It says he walks around the whole city, and the word in Greek there is, is uh, our word of theorizing. He's studying it intently. He's drawing conclusions. He's seeking to understand it. 
And then even when he gets to the message of God, does he start with Jesus? No. He starts at the very beginning of the story, and he tells the story of the whole world through God's story. And then, because everyone knows that the world as it is is not what it's supposed to be, that there is a serious problem, how does he address the problem? Does he use the word sin? No, he uses the term that every enlightened NPR listening Athenian would use. Ignorance. Because sin to a, a, an Athenian is, is that. It's ignorance. And Paul, don't think he's going soft here by trying to speak this thing in, 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 in their language. He's incredibly bold. Three times he tells them, these, these Athenians who know everything about everything, you guys are ignorant. He says that three times. I mean, I could just see him almost pointing at the temples and, 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 and the idols as he's speaking. It's like, uh, I, I, I can just see him like, come on, guys, how ignorant can you guys be? Uh, God didn't make those temples. You, you made those temples. Now, I'm going to tell you about a God who actually makes his own temple, and that temple is us. And I'm going to tell you about statues that he, our God makes, statues that are to reflect who the one true God is, and those statues are to be us. Now, see, I think every Athenian would challenge Paul at this point. He would say, come on, look at us. Look at the world, um, the people of this world. I mean, we're so far from being reflections of the gods. And, and here is where I could see Paul then just talking boldly about Jesus and the resurrection by saying something to the effect that, you know, Jesus came as, as this perfect reflection of God. And he came to restore that, that image and likeness, that reflection that is to be in us. And the way that he did it is the immortal one became immortal. The incorruptible one became corruptible. That the God became a man. So he could exchange our, morta our mortality with his immortality. Our incorruptible nature with his incorruptible nature. And our fallen nature. So we could be like him. And then I hear him just hitting the exclamation point, and God in this man, Jesus, is raising all things to life. And then I hear him saying, you think this God can overlook such ignorance of your religion? You think he can? Uh-uh. This God has set a time through this man Christ, when he is going to judge all ignorance and bring justice to the world. This is Paul. I love it. People got saved that day. A member of the Areopagus got saved. 
The Bible highlights women got saved. Many others. Now, what do we do with this? I have three takeaways. I think they're important. Number one, we have to take the gospel to the marketplace. We can't just, as, as, as Christians, retreat from the world and, 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 and hold ourselves up in, 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 this, in this place where we're escaping and keeping the world out. We have to get to the marketplace. That's why this church uses uh, terms like 90-10 because we want 90% of who we are as a church to be outside these walls, to be outside of a Sunday morning. It's not saying that, that this isn't important. I said it two weeks ago. We need church. I mean, this Dutch mafia in this town that, that is trashing church and saying you don't have to go to church and you, got, you can go around church. That's wrong. God loves his church. He died for his church. But the church needs to get into the marketplace. Like we heard about this morning with Dan and Food Share. And, and, and we need to be strategic about this. We, we need to be thoughtful because like I said earlier... Uh, Paul is not just some bull in a china shop who's just showing up in Athens and, and just kind of like banging them with the gospel. He's searching for, for any strategic opening that he can find, a place where he has an in, something that's natural to who Paul is and how God has wired him. And, and for Paul, it, it, it's easy to see for a guy who is raised in Tarsus, this, this university town, the university setting is very natural for Paul. Or for a guy who is a tent maker, a guy who spends so much time buying and selling, I mean, he's not going into the marketplace and not participating in it. He's a big participant. In fact, after this, Paul's going to go to Corinth. And I don't want to say too much about Corinth because that's for next week. However, Corinth is one of the most influential cities in the Roman Empire. And because of archaeology and the text, we know exactly the time period that Paul was in Corinth. And the text says he was there for 18 months. Like, why is he there for so long? Well, when you do the dating and the things that are even happening historically, the is the Isthmus Games, which in Paul's day is bigger than the Olympics themselves, are in Corinth uh, at the time when Paul is there. And this is when hundreds of thousands of people will flood into Corinth from all over the world. And it's not like they're going to stay in the local Holiday Inn. They're going to buy a tent. And here Paul, the tent maker, putting himself right in the heart of the whole deal. At every opportunity, telling people about Jesus. Not just with his words. He is the message. We are the message. What about you? What, what strategic place is, is, has God placed you? What is unique to you that, that you bring to the table? That you're not using for you but you're using for the cause of the gospel. 
second thing. A few weeks ago, I asked if you could explain the gospel from Scripture. That's what Paul did when he went in the synagogue. He would just uh, get out the text and explain Jesus from the Scriptures. I'm going to ask you today the opposite question. How many of you can explain the gospel without Scripture, but still being true to the Scriptures in a way that is culturally understandable? Because think about what the Bible is, and we, we, we can't forget this. The Bible is a story. Can you tell the story? And if you notice today, it's, it's all about the narrative. Everybody wants to control the narrative, both on a small scale, we want to control uh, the narrative on, on, on a large scale. Uh, God has been doing story from the very beginning. And the power of story is that story explains who we are, why we're doing here. It, it explains the world and why the world is. Can you tell God's story? Number three. As we've been stating the last couple of weeks, Jesus didn't come to set up a new religion. Jesus came to put an end to all religion, to temples and idols. Um, we don't need priests and sacrifices anymore because Jesus is the priest to end all priests. He's a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. We don't need temples because Jesus is the temple. He's this walking temple. And then when Jesus uh, went to be at God's right hand, it's like he said, tag, you're it, to the church. He said, you now are the place where God lives. We are the temple. And, and we are to, to live our lives as, as living sacrifices. And we're to be this kingdom of priests, which is why there can be no idolatry in our lives. And I think when we consider a place like Athens, ancient Athens, it's easy for us um, to see the temples and the, and the idols that are everywhere. I mean, they had a God for every aspect of life. They had a God for their health. They had a God for their wealth. They had a God for war. They had a God for knowledge. They had a God for, for the marketplace. They had their own patron God uh, for, their, for their family. They had a city God um, for everything. And we look at this and we say, you know, that's kind of archaic, but, but I think the ancients understood something that we moderns have forgotten is that things like money, money is more than money, sex is more than sex, fame is more than fame, beauty is more than, than, than beauty, food is more than food. These things are supercharged with spiritual power. And they become gods that we worship. They become our life. I think we worship all the same gods, just minus the temple and the statues. Romans 1, Paul says this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking they became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. Paul can't help but even close that with amen. How dare we worship parts and pieces of God's creation? God made us to worship him. 
to love him with everything that we have. And see, what went wrong in the garden is, I think, still what's wrong today. We still want control of our lives. We still want power. We still want the glory. And we come up with all these substitutes for God. Um, and, and the same could be true about us today. For although they knew God, they neither worshipped him as God nor gave thanks to him. I mean, Brandon gave this quote uh, a few months ago. And I think it's a quote that, that I'm gonna, we need to be seeing from time to time. It's from a guy who doesn't even believe in God. I think you guys got it, didn't you? There's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they plant you. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. We will worship something. What is it that gets your best time? What is it that gets your affection? What is it that gets your attention? What is it that you derive your meaning, your sense of worth, your, your sense of who you are? What is it? That's what you worship. And see, this is why the Bible in both the Old and New Testament speak about idolatry, not as this peripheral problem, but as our core problem. Because we will become what we worship. We will become what we love, and in the end, we will be its slave. Whoever seeks power will be controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance will be controlled by what other people think. The person who seeks money and beauty will be controlled by money and beauty. We do not control our lives, but we are controlled by the Lord of our lives. What is it? And I think like the ancients too, we compartmentalize all of our life. Uh, I mean, why do we have these compartments of sacred and secular? Well, sacred is where I live for God, and secular is where I get to live for me. And we are these practical polytheists uh, where, where we have all these different compartments and we trust these different powers in these various compartments. In one compartment, we might trust the God of the state. In another compartment, we might trust the God of the economy or the market. In another compartment, we might trust the God of self-help. In another compartment, we might just trust ourselves. And I'll tell you what shatters all of these compartments and shatters idolatry. Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Because Shema is, is, is the claim that there are no longer different gods for different things. It's the confession that there's one God who alone is Lord and that we are to live in such a way where we're to bring every aspect of our lives under this lordship. As Lord, his, his, 
His claim over us is not partial, it's total. Where everything that we possess, everything that, we be, that uh, belongs to us, everything that we are, everything is under his lordship. And you know what our response to that lordship is? Shema tells us, love God with everything you have, with everything that you are. Because we become what we love. And if we want to become like God, we need to love him. And our loves need to be shaped. For a Jew like Paul and Jesus, Shema is on their lips uh, every morning, every evening, and, and throughout the day where they are saying, I can see Paul walking through this, this uh, city of Athens saying it then, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And when they say, Hear, O Israel, uh, it's, Israel is to them, first of all, it's, it's God. But Israel is also, um, it's, it's the patriarch Jacob, because that's what his name was. Jacob, can you hear us? You see how I love God? Israel is the great cloud of witnesses that, that have gone before us. Can you see us? Can you see our love? Can you hear our love? It's the people of God today. Do we live lives uh, amongst each other where, where, where people can hear and see our love for God? And as they declare it, their hearts pray it. God, may I love you with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. And this is why we have mikvah today. Because I love repentance. The older I get, I can't believe that when I blow it, that when God puts his finger on things in my life that I love more, that have taken the place of God, and he shows me those things, and he reveals me those things, that I have the joy of repenting. I can turn from it. I can acknowledge it, and I can run back to the arms of God, and he's there to receive me. And mikvah is just a tangible way for us to repent. We need to repent. God, would you show us the idols in our life? The other lovers that we have brought into this marriage. And God, may we repent and recommit our lives, our hands, our heart, and our feet to you. Where we can say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is my God, the Lord alone. I love you with all my heart. I love you with all my soul. And I love you with everything I have. Amen. Now I'm going to tell you something. That takes grit. It takes grit to repent. I grew up with men that would come to church and chew gum and just stand there like statues. I want a church that's gritty. That when there's a chance to repent, we're going to seize it. If there's someone here today, because the last two times I've preached, people have come to Christ. 
And if you, for the first time, want to give your life to Jesus, I will be up there in the prayer room, and I'll serve you communion.